all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me today, I have Dr. Matthew Morris. He's a clinical psychologist with the Center for Integrative Health, also at UMMC. And today we're going to be talking about kind of coping with COVID-19 and coping with anxiety and depression and feelings of isolation. I've gotten so many questions and comments from from listeners and from friends and family who are just having a hard time right now. And we really want to address those issues today. If you have a question or a comment for us, you can give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672. 7464. You can always send me an email, fit at mpbonline.org, or you can go over to Facebook and chat with me on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Dr. Bidwell. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. You just call me Josie. You know, we're friends. <laughs> <Good thing. laughs> and yeah, and you know, we, uh, we, uh, before COVID, we're lucky enough to have adjoining offices over in the Center for Integrative Health and get to work with uh, with each other in person. But and now we're kind of working with each other distantly uh, as we adjust to this new normal. But tell us a little bit about kind of what first what a clinical psychologist is, what the Center for Integrative Health is, and kind of what you do. Yeah. So. As a clinical psychologist, what I'm primarily doing is uh, psychotherapy and a particular type of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And essentially, that means that I believe that what we think and what we do influences how we feel in terms of our emotions and also um, our physiological responses. So that's kind of the bread and butter of what I do um, at Center for Integrative Health, uh, treating mental health conditions that often kind of intersect and overlap with a variety of physical health conditions. Absolutely. And that that's kind of, uh, you know, the purpose of, of integrative health. So I've talked on this show a lot about lifestyle medicine, which is uh, kind of my my role in, in integrative health. But the team that we have at the Center for Integrative Health is really diverse and, and is able to really take care of, of individuals from a variety of standpoints. We've got um, myself uh, out Uh, out there half a day a week, and I handle more of the nutrition and uh, metabolic type disorders. And we've got a fantastic uh, psych mental health nurse practitioner, Stacey Kitchens, and she um, does more of the medication management for people with mental health issues. 
There's another clinical psychologist, Dr. Danny Burgess, um, who also does similar to what, what you do. And then we've got a fantastic physical therapist on board as well, who, uh, you know, helps us with get patients improving their functional mobility and decreasing muscle pain. And so a lot of the providers there are mental, mental health providers, but we try not to think of it in terms of just mental health. It's in its complete health of the individual, because while I'm seeing folks for diabetes, it doesn't necessarily mean that anxiety or stress or chronic pain are not impacting the way that they manage their diabetes. And so it's really integrating all of those things together to help, help take care of folks. And so it's a really um, unique way to practice healthcare. And I'm, I'm glad we're able to do that. So um, let's talk a little bit about what kind of what stress is, what anxiety is, what depression is, you know, are they the same thing? Are they different things? Are they a continuum? Kind of give us a little primer on that. Yeah, so I think the first thing that's important to note is that stress and anxiety are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, they're really important for uh, helping us to meet certain challenges in our lives, uh, to help us to motivate to do things that we might not, um, that we might not want to do. Um, and so, when those kinds of responses are relatively short and we recover quickly, um, they can be really adaptive, right? Um, the problem is when we're having those responses and we don't recover quickly, or if we find that those uh, stress responses are being repeatedly or chronically activated, such as uh, is common for many folks now during the pandemic, um, then that can sort of have a cumulative effect uh, and a negative impact on our uh, mental and physical health. So, so stress and anxiety are not necessarily bad things, uh, but they can be problematic. And when we talk about uh, depression, we're talking about um, something a little different. We're talking about uh, feeling sad or down or weepy uh, or maybe having difficulty uh, enjoying things or not being as, as interested in things. Um, and that frequently overlaps with anxiety, with the worrying that, that is characteristic of anxiety, but, but they're also separate. Yeah. And, you know, for me, they kind of, especially stress and anxiety kind of exist on a little bit of a, of a, a continuum. Um, you know, I'm writing a book chapter right now. And so I would say I have stress, um, you know, and, but it's, it's, it's good stress because it makes me, makes me write, you know, if I didn't have, have this kind of stressor going out there, then I would probably never get that done, you know, where, it becomes problematic as when that stress starts to kind of monopolize your thoughts and the way you interact with other people and the way you interact with yourself. You know, a lot of times people, I think, are afraid to say that they are feeling stressed or anxious because mental health issues don't have a lot of symptoms on the outside at least unless you're really, really looking close for those things. And so people feel like it's kind of less of a, less of a disorder or less of a problem and that they can just will it away. And it, that's really not, not the case. And, you know, I know that of course you've probably come up against that a lot in your career. And when I'm trying to 
uh, get folks to start seeing one of you guys, that's often some of the pushback I get was, I'm not crazy, right? That That's the word I hear a lot. And no, you're not, you know, you're not crazy. And I don't like that word anyway, um, you know, but we're all all struggling with different things. And the pandemic has certainly not helped this situation at all. What do you think, it, like, why do you think some folks are having more difficulty in, in this time than, than maybe previously? Yeah, I think it's probably for... A variety of reasons. I think um, our daily routines are affected by the pandemic, you know, so we're not uh, necessarily doing the same things um, that we were doing before. Uh, and that disruption in routines can have a really profound uh, effect on our ability to manage stress uh, and also um, uh, our mood. I think another thing is that it's, it's isolating us or it's making us it's making it more difficult for us to connect with those people uh, who are important in our lives. Um, and, um, and that's just an incredible uh, resilience factor, uh, whether it's a pandemic or some other type of acute stressor or disaster, the people that we have around us, um, our support network are really important for helping us through that. Um, and then I think there's the uncertainty, you know, there's just the not knowing, um, uh, not knowing uh, about, uh, factors related to our risk uh, when we go out into the world, uh, not knowing when things are going to end. There's the sort of uh, financial considerations um, that are part of this uh, epidemic, too. So I think it's increasing stress and it's also making it uh, more difficult for us to cope at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So is it is it normal to feel anxious about the situation that we're in? Yes, it's totally normal. Um, I feel anxious about it from time to time myself. Um, I think, uh, as we mentioned, as we were talking about before, I think it's it's normal to feel that anxiety. But if you start to notice that it's having a negative impact on your functioning in different spheres, if it's making it harder for you to concentrate at work, if it's uh, interfering or disrupting with your relationships with family members or others, um, if it's affecting, you know, your sleep, if it's harder to fall asleep or the opposite, if you're sleeping a lot more than usual, then I think it's starting to become a concern and something that deserves, um, uh, that deserves your focus. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you kind of highlighted some of those things when we talk about anxiety can be a good thing, but it's not good when it starts to affect you. And, and that's what we mean by that. So, you know, concentrating is a big one. Um, as well as the sleep. And then one that is especially kind of pertinent for, for what I do with metabolic issues is food. Um, and people usually either go one of two ways. It's either a stress eating type situation where they, we eat things that we know are not healthy for us. You know, they're usually fatty, salty, sugary type things. Um, and we eat them, we may even binge them um, in that situation, or a lack of appetite, you know, where you actually lose, um, you know, lose your appetite, and the thought of eating makes you kind of queasy or nauseous and all those different kinds of things. And so I think it's important to kind of connect the dots between these kind of physical type symptoms that we usually associate with some type of, of um, you know, physical condition um, to the, to the anxiety or to the depression or to the stress and link those things together because they are very much connected. 
you know, when I did primary care, I would have people come in all the time and they would be complaining of one of these things, you know, one of these, you know, I just, I'm not, I'm not hungry. I don't have an appetite, you know, or I'm fatigued. I don't, I don't feel well, you know, I have any energy. And, you know, oftentimes they may have seen someone else and had a, you know, a battery of tests done. And I'm not saying don't do those tests. We always want to make sure that there are not, you know, other illnesses go on board that are causing these types of symptoms, but we can't neglect the evaluation of the mental health piece to see if it's at least contributing to some of those types of symptoms there. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. And joining me today, I have one of my favorite people, um, Dr. Matthew Morris, who's a clinical psychologist at UMC. And we get to work together in the Center for Integrative Health and really uh, marry the mental health and the physical health together in taking care of folks. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, but we're focusing in on kind of coping with the uncertainty of, of our current world and working on our stress and our anxiety and our mental health. If you have questions or comments for us, you can give us a call. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email me fit at mpbonline.org or you can chat with me over on Facebook at Healthy Habits with Josie. All right, I had um, an email come in and so I have an email from Elaine and Elaine says that when that she's having trouble with kind of kind of stopping the worry, so to speak, that she kind of feels like she falls down a rabbit hole of of worst case scenarios and problems and what happens if she gets COVID. And and she says that, you know, she's the caregiver for um, her elderly mother. And so she gets kind of fixated on what happens if she gets infected and kind of how she would handle that situation. Any, any tips there, Matt? Yeah, I think, First of all, I think that's uh, that's a very reasonable and, and normal response to being in that kind of a difficult situation. I think 
when you're when you're dealing with those kinds of uh, thoughts about going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, in worst case scenarios, I think you have to um, ask yourself how helpful those thoughts are that you're having, um, how accurate they are. Um, is it possible that you might be exaggerating the possibility of something happening? Um, now, it's it's possible that your thoughts are totally accurate, right, and that your response is very reasonable. But I think with when we're talking about anxiety, what we're often talking about is sort of this um, worry about some uncertain future outcome. And um, if that outcome was facing you at that very moment, then that anxious response and the stress hormones associated with it would be um, perfectly reasonable and adaptive and it would actually help you. But if it's for something that's sort of vague and in the future and may or may not happen, then having that response over time um, can, really, uh, can really end up being harmful. So I think it's important to look at how, at how helpful your thoughts are. You might have the thought, for example, that, you know, that the world is a totally dangerous place right now. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, listeners out there who've, uh, you know, who've had that thought from time to time. Um, and the question is, how accurate is that really? Um, and so kind of tuning in and asking yourself those questions, uh, looking at the evidence for um, and against that thought. And it might be that, you know, a more helpful interpretation is the world is pretty dangerous at times, but there's still a lot of things that I can do to manage that risk, right? Um, and having that different interpretation can lead to, instead of having feelings of uh, fear and helplessness, you know, might help you to feel a little calmer um, uh, and a little more hopeful about the future. Yeah. And that really, you know, starts to kind of touch on that cognitive behavioral therapy that, that you were talking about. And, you know, kind of when you break those words down, like cognitive thoughts and then behavior, your actual, you know, action that you do, those two things are, are related. And so changing the way you think about the stressor um, can really be a powerful tool in, in dealing with those. Now, that's kind of easier said than done, um, and right. it's not often uh, fun <laughs> to start to, to, to change some of those things. But I really like how you said, you know, to, to really start to ask yourself, is this thought helpful? at all, you know, and just like my, um, example, when we started about, you know, I've got to write this book chapter, you know, that thought is helpful for me. Like I've, I've got to do it and I've got a deadline that I have to do it by. And so having that thought is going to spur me to action. Right. Um, whereas if, you know, I ignored that and I waited until the day before it was due, then that probably is going to be a bad outcome there, you know? Um, and so really what, and when I'm working with folks, and of course I'm, I'm not, I'm not a mental health expert. That's, that's why I love you guys so much. But one of the things when I'm working with folks is I ask them, you know, when they give me a negative thought, you know, like I can't do so-and-so I say, let's take that negative thought and see if we can turn it into some type of positive thought, you know? So if it's, I, I, there's no way I can give up soda. Right. That's that's one that I get a lot. I'll say, OK, what do you what what do you think you could do in terms of maybe not having as much sugar? You know, and oftentimes people go, well, I could I mean, I could go down by half on on the soda, you know. And so it's just not being perfect, but just kind of reframing how you think about that. And in terms of kind of these worst scenario things, um, I think it's it's helpful for people to kind of have a plan 
if something goes wrong, but a realistic plan, right? Like we can't uh, solve or plan for every nuance. That's when people often get kind of stuck in the cycle of, of obsessing about things. But we can make reasonable plans. Like for Elaine, you know, she mentioned she's a caregiver for her elderly mother. So, you know, what is the backup plan for that? You know, if she were to, to get sick, you know, is there a family friend that we're going to be able to loop in and, and, and have her, you know, come over and help take care of that? You know, those types of things. Striving for not perfect, you know, no, no plan has to be perfect, but just having some of those things um, in, in the background. And then the other is just knowing your risk, you know. So for Elaine, you know, really step back and look at what, realistically your risk of contracting COVID is, you know, how much exposure do you have? What types of precautions um, can you put in place that are realistic uh, to, to, to protect yourself while also living your life? You know, uh, when this first started and um, everything came out about hand washing and all those kinds of things, which I adore, I'm, you know, I'm a, a hand washing Fiend, but my my mind immediately went to people who have obsessive compulsive disorder and how these types of, of public health messages, which are vitally important, might be affecting them and their mental health. Correct? Tell me about about OCD because oftentimes I think people joke about it. They're like, "Oh, I'm so OCD," right? Um, but yeah. you know what what is that and how how do you marry that? in a time where we do want to be, you know, paying attention to exposure to germs and those types of things. Right. So you're, what we're talking about uh, in the case of OCD is um, some obsessive thoughts and not just kind of, you know, here and there fleeting thoughts, but thoughts that are uh, lingering for more than an hour a day that are really sort of uh, consuming somebody's experience. Um, and in this case, they might they might be about um, they might be about contamination, and they could be about the pandemic. And so there's these thoughts that are kind of unpleasant to have, um, and that really take you away from living the life that you want to live. Uh, and then there are these compulsive behaviors that are things that you do to try to neutralize or to stop those thoughts, right? And those can take a good amount of time uh, during the day too. Um, and so I think it's it's natural that we're that we're experiencing probably a surge um, uh, in concerns about cleanliness, um, not just um, uh, of our own cleanliness, but of others, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that it's important um, while you're doing that to sort of be, um, to be trying to manage uh, your risks. So thinking about what can I do right now? Uh, if there is something I can do, then engaging in some sort of problem solving for that. But if there's not anything that you can do, then that implies a different set of coping strategies, right? Things like maybe managing your reaction to the problem, uh, things like um, acceptance or distraction, right? Um, and so I think it's kind of important to ask, is it something that you can control? If yes, then by all means, go about trying to figure out how to do that. Um, but if you can't control that, that it implies these different kinds of strategies. And that might be things as well like uh, that are directly directly targeting um, the uh, the physiological stress response, right? So doing things like uh, deep breathing, uh, doing things like something we call progressive muscle relaxation, which is a very effective way of kind of tensing certain muscle groups and then relaxing them. Um, and uh, and these things and the deep breathing in particular can be really effective for um, for slowing down the stress response. 
um, and for achieving uh, a greater calm. Yeah. And if, if listeners out there have ever been a patient of mine, they've probably left with a, a prescription, mm-hmm. so to speak, of deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation. If they have, have endorsed any type of you know, problems with stress or anxiety or sleep or any of those other kinds of things, because they are so powerful. You mentioned that those two techniques kind of help um, uh, augment the, the stress response. Kind of just in a, in a nutshell, what, when we say stress response, what does that mean? What, what is that feeling for, for people? What is that? Yeah, so um, we have two major stress response systems in the body, and uh, the sympathetic works very quickly within a matter of seconds um, from when we feel some sort of uh, threat or challenge. Uh, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal um, axis works a little more slowly. That produces the stress hormone called cortisol, which many people know about. Um, and so what we're talking about here, especially if we focus on cortisol, is sort of we see this peak about 20 minutes after a stressor uh, starts, after something stressful happens. Um, and really that helps us to mobilize our response. And so when we're feeling stressed, that might look like um, having your heart race faster than normal, uh, maybe breathing more quickly, maybe feeling sweaty palms, uh, maybe your thoughts moving a little more quickly than usual. Um, and, uh, but what we typically see is sort of recovery within 30 to 40 minutes. And if, you're, um, if your stress, if your experience of stress is lasting longer than that, then that's when it really becomes kind of problematic. And that's when uh, maybe trying to, uh, to do things to either uh, shift your attention away from whatever it is that's bothering you, or um, in some cases, the opposite, to just kind of cultivate a different way of being with our thoughts. And what I mean by that is um, to try to just observe your anxious thoughts uh, and not react to them. So just cultivate a certain curiosity about them, to understand and reassure yourself that this anxiety, just like all emotions, is it's not permanent, right? You just have to ride the wave. It'll come and go. Um, and sometimes changing our relationships with our thoughts is just as important as changing our thoughts themselves. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, I think it's important that people pay attention to kind of the symptoms that, that you were kind of talking about there when we have that stress response. You know, you may start to get sweaty um, and it may be... Um, not maybe underarm sweat, but it may also be sweat in other areas like your palms, your feet, um, uh, kind of in your chest area, those types of things. Some people will report kind of a like a nauseous sensation, and that's usually because the the blood supply is kind of being shunted away from the from the GI tract at that present time, and so that's kind of getting sluggish. And so you may kind of feel nauseous. Some people have to pee. You know, <laughs> they kind of endorse feeling like they need to go to the bathroom. Um, some people get jittery and shaky. Breathing usually does speed up. Um, and for some people, they perceive that as being short of breath, you know, when there's actually not an oxygenation issue, but they kind of have that feeling of shortness of breath, um, heart racing. Um, for some people, even chest pain um, can happen at those particular times. And these techniques that you've been talking about, the kind of progressive muscle relaxation, the deep breathing, um, and I want to talk about distraction as well, because they're, they're all um, important, can help kind of modulate that, that stress response.
I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me today, I have Dr. Matthew Morris, and we're talking about stress and anxiety and depression and really mental health in the time of coronavirus. If you have a question or a comment for us, our number is one mpb ring or you can interact over on Facebook, Healthy Habits with Josie. So before the break, we were kind of talking about um, what the stress response is and some of the, the the feelings that individuals may have when the stress response is initiated. And I, I want to make sure that we, again, highlight the fact that the stress response in general is not a bad thing, right? You know, if um, somebody busted in the door of my house, the stress response would make me get up and, and either fight or or flee. You know, that's kind of why it's called the, the fight or, or flight response. It's when that particular response happens to a non-threatening situation. Um, so there is no one breaking in. There's no zombie. There's no bear. There, you know, there's none of these things. Um, or when it does not resolve and, and go away. And that's for a variety of reasons why we don't you know, don't want that hanging around all the time, but you mentioned um, earlier about concentration. And when your mind is running from something, you know, even if it's not something that is physically present, it's very, very hard to concentrate on other, other things. Um, And then that cortisol hormone that you mentioned um, that, that goes up in response to this, again, a good hormone for the the short-term response to things, but long-term elevations in cortisol are not great for us. Um, In particular, they kind of help lower the immune system. And, you know, that's the question. One of the questions I get a lot right now is how do I, you know, how do I stay well? And, you know, modulating that stress response and keeping that cortisol level down is one way to do that. All right, we've got a caller. So we'll hop over to the phone lines and talk with Bobby in Brookhaven. Good morning, Bobby. Good morning. How are y'all? We are okay. How can we help you today? Well, I hope you can. I have a 12-year-old daughter, and just uh, really the past, I say past few months, maybe COVID-related, maybe not, has developed developed some stress and anxiety issues. And so I have tried to uh, teach her the breathing exercises, and she always says those helps, and that kind of calms her down. The issue that I am having, though, is she also has asthma, and so it's kind of a 
a cycle there that when the asthma flares up, she has the panic and the panic and the breathing back and forth. So is there a way to kind of work both of those together? That's an excellent question. And I, I know Matt's going to have some things to talk about there. Um, from a purely medical perspective, you know, I would ask about the frequency of her asthma kind of flares or her asthma exacerbations. Um, Cause if they are frequent, then we kind of need to, to target that part as well to make sure that we get her under as, as tight a control in terms of an, of an asthma flare as we can so that she doesn't have that kind of initial uh, shortness of breath or, or uh, sensation that may trigger her anxiety. Uh, Matt, what have, you got in terms? Go ahead. If she does have that inhaler uh, that she takes, uh, she'll average one, maybe two flare-ups a month. Uh, okay. I, I just I just didn't want to start with this young on any kind of anxiety medicine if I didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Matt, go ahead. Yeah. So I think when you're talking about um, panic attacks, you have these attacks that are kind of triggered by stressful things that are going on in our lives, and they may be to some degree a little more easy to uh, to predict. And then you have the, these attacks that come on seemingly out of the blue, and what we typically see with the second kind of pattern is that there's some sort of physical symptom that starts it off. And it could be something, you know, for example, related to asthma, maybe a shortness of breath. And then there's a kind of a, a response to that, right? Uh, some type of an interpretation. Um, and it could be, you know, uh, some worry about not being able to breathe or some sort of um, catastrophic um, uh, outcome uh, that may be associated with the difficulty breathing. And so, I think the deep, I'm really glad that you're doing the deep breathing uh, with her uh, during times when she's not in a full state of panic. And I think it can be really great as sort of a preventive kind of practice um, to do throughout the day, just to kind of lower stress levels, lower the likelihood of having a panic attack. But it's a little more difficult to do right in the midst of a panic attack, right? Um, so, so what I would recommend is kind of uh, when she's not in a state of panic, uh, having her think about what is it that goes through her mind? Um, is she worried about dying? Is she having images that she might uh, be dying during those attacks? And then helping her to think about more positive, sort of realistic interpretations or, or almost mantras that she can say to herself in those moments. Like, I'm just having um, an asthma attack, right? There's things that I can do about this. I can use my inhaler if I need to. Um, and that sort of uh, positive self-talk can, can help uh, can help calming during the midst of an attack. Okay. And when she's having the panic attack, it's more like a worst case scenario situation for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. right. So when she's, you know, when she's not having one, have her go through and think about what are the worst case scenarios? What are the likelihood of those things happening? You know, um, have her think it all the way through um, and, uh, and then come up with some sort of coping statements is what we might call them um, that then she can use when she's in the midst of an attack. And, for some folks that I work with, they might actually write those down on index cards and have those with them so that they can remind themselves. Because, of course, when we're in the state of panic, it's hard to, you know, remember things. Um, uh, it affects our concentration and working memory. Um, and so having those cards uh, with those statements written down can be helpful. Right. And I, yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I want to say, you know, thank you for being a supportive daddy and, and, and helping her out, you know, as, um, as an adolescent and a teenager, I had lots of problems with anxiety, um, panic attacks and those types of things. And what helped me be able to kind of overcome that 
is the support of my family and, and realizing that, you know, I had an issue and I needed, I needed help in learning how to deal with those things. And that didn't mean that there was anything wrong with me or, you know, that I was broken in any way. I just needed some support. And I mean, look, I mean, I'm on a live radio show now. So, I mean, that would, you know, have made me dissolve into a a fit of panic uh, as, as young me. And, you know, so, and then my, my oldest child has, has anxiety as well. And, so, you know, really making sure that they never feel judged, they never feel like there's anything wrong with them for having those thoughts and supporting them through it. And kind of what Matt was talking about with the index cards, um, you know, I call it worry journaling. Um, and, you know, there's, um, there's an app for that because there's apps for, for everything. Um, but it's one that I've used with my son um, when kind of he has this worst case scenario thought come in is, okay, well, let's write it down and think through it, right? You know, so let's write the worry down. How likely is that to actually happen? What's the most likely outcome for this to be? And kind of change the way that they think about the worry. Um, So, you know, it's really important. You know, I would say if you have access to a clinical psychologist, they would be a great person um, to bring on board to help um, help teach her and you, um, you know, different thought patterns, different coping strategies to help her through this. Um, and, and she will get through this. You know, it seems, uh, it seems daunting in the middle of a panic attack that, you know, this is never going to end, or if it does end, it's going to end in something catastrophic. Um, but, you know, really kudos to you, dad, for, for supporting her and looking for ways to help her through these things. Well, thank you for your help so very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving us a call. All right, guys, if you have a question or a comment for us, you can give us a call. Number's one eight seven seven mpb ring All right, Matt, we've talked a lot about this deep breathing situation. Let's actually explain what it is and how you do it. Great. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to do. Um, and on the surface, it's really simple. Um, it's just about breathing in and out slowly um, and trying to breathe into your belly. So if you were to place a hand on your belly button and another hand on your chest and breathe, um, most of the breathing that we do during the day is shallow. Um, So we might just notice that our chest is moving up and down. But what we wanna do for this kind of breathing is make sure that we're inflating our belly um, and breathing deep into our diaphragm. And because we're breathing more deeply, we're oxygenating our blood more efficiently, we can actually breathe more slowly. And that's really the key because the slow um, out-breath is what sort of triggers the parasympathetic nervous system um, and uh, engages our body to take on you know, long-term projects instead of kind of focusing on immediate stressors, right? Um, and so by changing the way that we breathe, we can actually signal to our body that we're um, in a place of safety um, and that we can be calm. And so on the surface, that's all it is that you're, that you're doing. It's just breathing slowly in and out. Um, uh, but what I also recommend doing is to try to pay attention to your breathing in a particular way. Um, and that's the part that's a little more difficult. So trying to focus on the breathing, uh, noticing the sensations of breathing in and out, um, maybe noticing that the air feels a little cooler when it goes in your nose than when it comes out. Um, and if you, if you notice that your attention is... is uh, directed somewhere away from the breathing, right? If you start to worry about something or a really common thing is to make to-do lists, 
Um, then as soon as you notice that, just kind of gently bring your attention back to your breathing, right? Um, and it may be that you end up doing that over and over and over. Um, but each time you do that, you're sort of strengthening your ability to kind of uh, change your attention. And um, that can be really useful for uh, something that we call emotion regulation or for coping, right? Um, and so, um, and so really it's not, the purpose of the breathing is not to relax. That's a very common and pleasant byproduct of the practice. Really, it's just paying attention in a non-judgmental way. Um, and, uh, and that's really at the core of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I first start kind of explaining it to, to folks, I'll say, okay, if I told you to get up and, you know, run to your mailbox. When you get there, I want you to think about how you're breathing, you know, and normally your chest would be rising and falling, maybe in a, in a quicker manner, but it would be the muscles in between your ribs, the intercostal muscles that are um, expanding your rib cage to make you have more air come in, right? And that's also the type of breathing that initiates that sympathetic response that you were talking about. That's that stress response, right? Because we needed the act, the extra kind of stressor to to run. And so, when I tell folks take a deep breath, usually when they take that deep breath, they use those chest muscles and and breathe in through their chest. And so that's the kind of the the wrong kind of deep breathing, so to speak, if we're trying to do the the relaxation piece. So just like you mentioned, putting one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly and, you know, taking a deep breath and seeing which one rises more than the other is a good way to, to see if you're belly breathing or chest breathing and then intentionally focusing on trying to make that belly hand raise. And so this takes practice. I mean, it really does. And so a lot of times I write the, you know, the kind of the prescription for this as deep breathing five minutes twice daily. And so you do it, you know, every day, twice daily, just to get in the habit of being able to do that. That way, when you're in an anxious situation, you can fall back on knowing how to do it appropriately at that time. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and Dr. Matthew Morris has been helping us out today as we talk about stress and anxiety. 
And we, uh, before the break, we talked about uh, abdominal deep breathing as a, as a technique to help with stress. And I want to kind of piggyback on that in our last couple of minutes and talk about probably what people see as a buzzword right now, which is mindfulness. It seems to be, to be everywhere. Uh, we see books about mindfulness. And if you have a Pinterest account, you see all kinds of ways to do mindfulness. Um, and a lot of times, well, actually I have one client in particular who said, Hey, what's mindfulness? Is that voodoo? <laughs> That's what she said. And I was like, ah, oh, no, it's not voodoo, but, but tell us a little bit about what mindfulness is and it, is it a viable treatment strategy? Yes, it is a viable treatment strategy. Mindfulness. Um, well, there's a lot of different ways of defining it. Um, I think, and, and some people might argue that it's that you, that it's more aptly called uh, mindlessness, mm. um, but it's, it's paying attention in a particular uh, non-judgmental way to your experience. Right. Um, and so for, um, for folks that I see at the center for integrative health, um, you know, I tell them that, you know, we, we talk to ourselves all day long, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make us crazy. We just have this constant internal uh, monologue. And sometimes it's, um, it's boring and, and we don't really need to pay attention to it, but sometimes, especially, you know, during, uh, uh, the times of COVID, it can be incredibly important to kind of tune in, um, and to observe what it is that's going through our minds. Uh, you know, there's that old saying that, you know, you are what you eat. And, and I think, uh, in many ways, you are what you think, right? Mm, um, and so yes. paying attention to kind of what's going on in the back of your mind all day long uh, is incredibly important. And the breathing exercise that we uh, practice before the break uh, is one good way of doing that. It's sort of a way of kind of taking your temperature, as it were, uh, uh, with regards to your emotional well-being, right? What's going on? Yeah. And you know, uh, progressive muscle relaxation can be a type of mindfulness as well, because you're it's, it's really concentrating on what you're sensing and not always what you're thinking. And I liken it to if you've ever kind of gotten in your car and driven somewhere and then you're like, what, this is not, how'd I get here? Like, this is not where I was planning to go. It's because you kind of did it kind of just by habit and mindlessly. And you were probably in your head thinking about other things while you were driving and not paying attention to, I need to turn here and go here and all these different kinds of things. And I find that that happens a lot just in our daily life. You know, uh, when you're walking to a meeting, you know, I'm, I'm in my head the whole time with, you know, what's this meeting about? What am I going to be talking about? What's my next meeting after this? You know, how many loads of laundry do I have when I get home? And, you know, all these different kinds of things. And that's very, very stressful. And so kind of unplugging that and focusing in on the things that you're sensing around you can be very, very helpful. So we're, um, I'm homeschooling. <laughs> Yay. And uh, we, I'm, we're actually creating a mindfulness bulletin board right now that will have different um, kind of exercises on it for, for the boys to do or for me to do when we're kind of feeling like we're going to, we're going to explode, you know, like when our, when our stress is, is really coming up and it will have things like progressive muscle relaxation and deep breathing exercises. And then one of our favorites is an outside scavenger hunt. So we get outside and we are focusing on finding those things outside, you know, birds and earthworms and something that's purple and, you know, all of these different kinds of things to really ground us in what's going on around us and not the world that's going on in, in our head, you know, and that really 
is twofold. It's, it's helping with the stress, but it's also getting us up and getting us active, which exercise can be, you know, such a powerful tool in, in dealing with stress and anxiety and depression and worry and all of these different kinds of things there. Um, so we've got just a few, about 30 seconds left, Matt. Is there kind of a parting, parting thought for folks dealing with stress and anxiety during these times? A uh, parting thought. I mean, I, I think, you know, people sometimes ask and I say, you know, if I could prescribe one thing uh, for all of my patients to do, it would be probably to exercise. I just think it has such uh, a powerful impact on uh, not only our, our physical health, but also our emotional well-being, our ability to manage stress. Um, so, um, so that would be my one recommendation, I guess, if you can yeah. add something to your daily routine, add exercise. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. If you're a parent on the go but still want to stay informed about your children's education, subscribe to Mississippi Education Connections podcast and listen on the go anytime, anywhere on your favorite podcast app.